Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast for people who help people with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. Here's your host, Bob Sidlow. Hello. Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast series for medical providers, nurses, and community health workers. The goal of this program is to inform and share best practices related to care for people with HIV and is brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center, a regional partner of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I'm Bob Sidlow, your host, the director of the Connecticut AETC. I'll be joined by my co-host, Sharon McKay, a curriculum development and evaluation specialist with Connecticut AETC. Our guest today, Dr. Onyema Obagu, is an associate professor of medicine in the section of infectious diseases at Yale University. Dr. Obagu cares for patients who are affected by or at risk for HIV AIDS and hepatitis C. He is the director of the Yale AIDS program, HIV Clinical Trials Research, and his areas of expertise are HIV care, hepatitis C, and pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP. He is a teacher and mentor for Yale medical students, residents, and infectious disease fellows. In addition, Dr. Obwaku is an active member of the Yale Global Health Institute. He contributes to creating sustainable patient care, supporting training, and furthering research activities in patient services in Liberia and Rwanda. He has established the first infectious disease fellowship and HIV training in Liberia. We're so excited to have you here today, Dr. O, to tell us about some of the new developments in the pharmacological approaches to HIV therapy and prevention. But before we begin, I thought it might be helpful if we could create a framework for our listeners. I thought we could do maybe a little short primer and talk about some of the concepts that are important to help our listeners better understand the drug study results that you'll probably talk about today. So, um, I have a couple of questions that I hope will help listeners with this. So first of all, when looking at a new, at new drug data, how important is it to assess the data in the context of patient adherence to a drug regimen? That's a great question. Uh, but before I, I pivot to, to that answer, um, I just wanted to say that um, it's important when looking at new drug data to, to make sure that the uh, sample population represents um, you know, your patient's population. So in other words, you're looking at things like age, younger, older, you're looking at race, ethnicity, and also gender, because there are certain groups that are typically underrepresented in clinical trials, including women and also racial ethnic minorities. And then beyond that, one other thing to pay attention to is, is the drug trial for uh, treatment-naive individuals? So these are individuals who are not an antiviral therapy, who are just beginning therapy, or is it um, uh, its trial for uh, just maintenance of, of suppression? So these are people who are on treatment, who are suppressed, and if it's that. Now, in that context, we realize that one of the most critical um, the, uh, determinants of efficacy or how well a regimen does is patient adherence. Um, now, that's where you need to pay attention to, again, to the efficacy data that's reported in clinical trials, because in many uh, um, of those instances, because clinical trials are done so rigorously, patient follow-up is intense, and there's all these resources to support patients while they're on study. In many cases, the, the efficacy we see in clinical trials may be much higher than what to expect in the real world. So I think over time, you know, we've learned that supporting uh, patient adherence is critically important. 
Um, and this includes both within context of clinical trials, but also even in the real world practice. You know, we learn to, to support our parents, have adherence coaches, and there's so many strategies, you know, that could work to uh, certainly to advance that. Last thing I will say is that there are certain groups that are probably more at risk for, um, for adherence to medications. In my experience, this includes uh, adolescents with HIV, so pediatric um, HIV uh, participants in the most part, especially the adolescents who are transitioning from pediatric to adult HIV care. Um, we know that racial ethnic minorities, particularly Blacks, tend to struggle a little more than other racial ethnic groups um, um, with adherence. And also people who are struggling with you know, significant comorbidities or other health conditions like mental health conditions or substance use, or even have housing and food insecurity, those things that we need to pay attention to. You know, people who lack a family support system or support system where they have to hide their meds because they're worried about being found out that they have HIV. So, you know, supporting adherence really is critical to making sure, regardless of um, if it's clinical trial or in the real world, to, to support adherence. So some drugs are developed to deal with the drug-resistant forms of HIV. What patient factors associated with drug resistance need to be considered when you're looking at new drug data? Yeah, so um, there's a subset of patients with HIV who have accumulated drug resistance over time. And this is typically in the context of, again, like we mentioned earlier, a very good lead on is uh, poor adherence to regimens tends to be the, the primary um, um, issue there. So uh, again, I think that, and, and of course, you know, um, uh, one of the consequences of, of uh, poor adherence is drug resistance. Now, there's two kinds of drug resistance. There's primary drug resistance, which is resistance people have even before they're on antiretroviral therapy, which typically reflects the resistance, you know, in the viral strain that they acquired. And then there's secondary drug resistance or treatment-related drug resistance that is resistance developed when there's poor adherence to therapy, suboptimal uh, drug levels. And so it's really important um, when, when looking at some of that data to, to pay attention to the resistance patterns of people that were involved, because sometimes in selecting a regimen, we really need to pay attention to what the resistance patterns were. One of the good news, though, uh, more contemporarily, is that you know, we have patients who have resistance to all the previous older generations of HIV treatments. It's incredible, like the NRTIs, the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, protease inhibitors, interphase inhibitors. But we've been fortunate that in the most recent five years or so, we've had uh, a couple of um, uh, compounds approved for multi-drug-resistant HIV. An example would be ibalizumab, which is a CD4 monoclonal antibody and for stem there, which is an attachment inhibitor, and there's so there are quite a few percolating that are coming out there. So the good news is that um, uh, even for people who have multi-drug resistance to older regimens, that we we do have regimens we can salvage them with. You you mentioned uh, a monoclonal antibody drug that's being used for multi-drug resistant HIV. That's really exciting. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that's being used and what it portends for the future of ART? Yeah, so the drug I mentioned is a CD4 monoclonal antibody. So we know that HIV, the virus, has an affinity for cells that express CD4. That's the receptor to which the virus binds or attaches to initiate the process of entering into the cell and then, you know, putting its genetic material into the host cell and making copies of itself. So, um, you know, it's uh, a, a, a 
drug that works pre-integration. Now, the monoclonal antibodies are very unique uh, class, class of drugs. Um, they're really pro protein compounds. And uh, because this is a new class of drug, um, there's no resistant cost to the patient for other antiretrovirals. So in other words, even if people fail that therapy, you're not sacrificing any of the uh, other classes of medications, which is always an advantage when it comes to the risk of, of developing resistance. Um, uh, it has some certain unique uh, issues, though. It's an infusional agent. It's dosed every two weeks, starting with a loading dose and subsequently maintenance doses. Um, it's, you know, quite expensive, about $100,000 uh, plus minus a year to administer. But it's such um, uh, an effective drug um, in, in people who had very, very high rates of multidrug resistance. The drug was able to salvage almost half of them through a year, which is incredible based wow. on our, our treatment experience. So, yes, um, it's a great amazing. tool in our arsenal, but I think implementing it in clinical care settings, you know, obviously you need nursing, you need be able to you know uh, deliver an infusion um you need to do that every two weeks for people so there's a little bit of logistics around uh, using the drug but again for the patients that really need it, it it should work well um so i know that there are monoclonal antibody drugs used a lot in cancer um are there any oral monoclonal antibodies that's a great question um so because they're proteinaceous uh, substances um the technology hasn't quite developed to the point where they can be delivered orally. So the monoclonal antibodies you always hear about parenterally administered, uh, administered, so they can be infusional, they can be you know intramuscular, in some cases even as, as subcutaneous. But we're not quite there yet with uh, oral therapy, and I think that that's uh, definitely uh, a need for the future. So it could one day, uh, if if uh, it could become an oral therapy, there could be uh, in increasing numbers of monoclonal antibodies even available for ART, even for non-drug non-multi-drug uh, resistant forms of HIV. Or do you see that being in the future? Um, there, there are valuable drugs. It's hard to know where they fit currently because they're going to be overtaken very rapidly by much more longer acting compounds. You know, for example, now there's the capsid inhibitor, which is a six month drug. Um, some other HIV drug compounds are being uh, tweaked into implants, for example, that can deliver drugs steadily for a year. So I think there's really going to be not just one kind of product out there. I think there'll be different kinds, different delivery systems so that it will end up being, you know, I always like to use the contraception example that, you know, uh, antiretroviral therapy will be like contraception where some people feel comfortable with a daily pill. Some people want the pill intermittently. Some people will be comfortable with a long acting injection. But I think the field at least is currently uh, what's hot in the field is really chasing down long acting therapies for patients. So traditionally, antiretroviral therapy has included combinations of one or two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and either a integrase strand transfer inhibitor, um, a protease inhibitor, or a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Um, early on, that meant patients were um, taking a lot of pills, but now we see compounds that are processed that enable multiple drugs to be delivered in a single pill. What are the advantages and disadvantages of the new single pill compounded uh, medications? Yeah, so, you know, um, since 2006, when we first had, you know, uh, a favorant, a single tablet regimen, which was then called a tripla, it's been such an explosion of single tablet regimens that are now available. We have way over 10 
of those currently available. And, you know, uh, I think you really allude to Bob, just the convenience that patients uh, will have with taking a single tablet regimen that includes, you know, the right cocktail of medications that can keep them suppressed. So um, that's the current paradigm. They've worked well, as, along with the formula, the formula of having one or two NRTIs with either an integrase protease inhibitor or a non-leukocyte breast inhibitor as what we call the base compound. So, but, but I think the field is now moving towards trying to eliminate long-term toxicities of many of these agents, particularly the, the nucleoside breast transcriptase inhibitor. So I'm talking about things like tenofovir, disoproxyphemorate, tenofovir, alafenamide, um, abacavir, lamivudine, amphicytidine, you know, those type drugs. So, so and now that now there are two drug constructs, first of all, that include an integrase inhibitor and just one NRTI and eliminating the most um, toxic uh, NRTI uh, there so that we get two drug combinations that we can both use for starting therapy as well as maintaining uh, suppression. But we're also coming up with two drug constructs that do not even include nucleoside breast transcriptase uh, inhibitors, you know, so one example would be dolutegrin um, which is also the trade name is Juluca. Um, that's also, uh, that has been approved for maintenance therapy and doesn't even include any NRTIs. So because until we find a cure of some other uber long acting agent, the paradigm is lifelong therapy for HIV. And so we want to be able to treat patients, but also to minimize the long-term toxicities of treatments. And I think that's driving the field in the directions I mentioned. So the two drug regimens are pretty exciting. Why haven't we seen these before? Why are they just starting to come out now? <laughs> you know, we, we've evolved over time, right? So if you think back to the days of AZT in the mid 80s, right, 1986, you know, we you know, tried one drug and then we found that, that you did one drug, people got resistance. And then for the next decade, right, from 1986 to 1996, it was actually in 1996, I think, David Ho is credited for that idea about, you know, hit hard, hit early, um, use combination therapy. And that's where when we combined the previous inhibitor with two NRTIs for the first time, you really had not just suppressing the virus, but durable suppression of the virus um, without uh, the risk of resistance that we had seen. So frankly, those three drug combinations were a lot of work. You know, and over time that came to be the paradigm. But having then established that as the paradigm, of course, now the field is exploring uh, options, right? Like that, trying to again limit the long-term toxicities that people are exposed to, and probably uh, uh, provide options that require less frequent dosing. So it's all very exciting. I think it's just informed uh, by the need to just keep pushing the envelope to keep treatments uh, safer and more tolerable for patients. So you're talking about like re reducing, of course, the combination therapies were reducing uh, pill burden and the, the number of pills that people have to take in a day. And now they have two drug regimens, still single tablet, right? Those two drug regimens you're describing are single tablet. Are there new drug delivery options besides oral medications? You kind of referenced them a moment ago. Um, what are they? What are some other alternative ways of treating HIV without uh, taking antiretroviral therapy, without taking pills? Yeah, so, that, so that's a, a great question, Bob. Um, yeah, so uh, we, we do have um, other uh, alternatives now to the daily oral combination, you know, pill for, for HIV. Um, one example would be actually a newly approved in 2021, uh, to a combination of two drugs, cabotegravir and ropivirine, the intramuscular injection formulations that can be dosed once a month. This is approved by the FDA. So it's an integrase inhibitor uh, uh, co-formulated with a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, and that's already approved for 
um, uh, uh, maintenance of therapy in people who uh, are suppressed on their prior uh, pill-based regimen. Um, uh, there's actually great data for that same regimen for a two-month uh, delivery uh, frequency. And also we hope that the FDA will be able to extend that so that we can then have an every two-month injectable option uh, for people uh, living with HIV. Um, there are um, single agents in development that do have uh, longer um, half-lives, but I think one of the activities going on behind the scenes is because some of these longer acting you know, oral agents belong to different companies. So there's a lot of collaboration behind the scenes to try and partner these long acting drugs. And it may require different pharmaceuticals talking to each other to come to agreements like they've done in the past with Tripla, for example, to, to advance that. Um, there's uh, other agents that are, are percolating in the background. Um, uh, one example, like I mentioned earlier, is uh, the capsid inhibitor, which is a six-month uh, uh, dose uh, injectable acceptance in, in, uh, uh, injection. Um, that's also uh, going to be a great uh, option for the future. It's been it had this. It's shown great phase two um, data, and hopefully, um, you know, as more data emerges, that may also be a good option for, for longer acting treatment. So we have the leading candidates that look good, and I, I would predict that there'll be so much more in the future. Does the, 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 these long acting uh, agents that you're describing, including the one that's now available, are those um, cost prohibitive or are they, um, so, you know, for someone who's on a one pill one today, and then this is a new, a new alternative that helps them with adherence, but is there a huge cost differential between the two that you know of? Yes, uh, there, there is, especially, for example, the combination intramuscular injections. I, I think the monthly costs uh, is, you know, what is it, 4000 or something higher than that per month, um, uh, U.S. dollars. However, um, yeah, embedded into uh, uh, as, as, as some of that is, you know, patient assistance programs that consider, you know, what income is uh, compared to poverty level, and also to support uh, people who don't have medical insurance. Um, but as you can imagine, like any other marketplace, as, as more of these agents and choice uh, becomes available, then you can imagine that the, the costs will be driven down quite substantially. Um, um, you know, again, I think that there are other benefits to long acting therapies, you know, since they tend to do better with people who are poorly adherent to medications. If you think about hospitalizations that are avoided, you know, because people are just more adherent to therapy, don't get sick, don't get an opportunistic infection. You know, I think there's so many other benefits to long active therapy so that when we think about the unit cost of the drug, I think that there are other cost savings to, to the health system, you know, by really um, providing uh, medications that uh, give people a better chance to stay adherent, suppress the viral load, not get sick from HIV, and live you know, uh, near normal life expectancy, like the model show. And, and the new NT, NRTI Duravarine, what are the benefits of using that particular medication um, and what combinations are used with it? Yeah, thank you, Bob. That's a great question. So Duravarine is, is, a, is a unique non-leucoside best transcript inhibitor. So the first generation where fibrins and levirapine and a drug, Delaverdine, that nobody ever talks about anymore. <laughs> and then we had, you know, Ripilpivirine and Etrovirine riptivirine those twice a day, riptivirine once a day. But Doravirine uh, has a, a, a kind of, uh, still a non best transcription inhibitor, but has a very different resistance profile to some of the older NNRTIs. 
So for example, there are people who have mutations, like there's a mutation we call the Y181C, that actually, if you have that, you none of the prior NNRTIs, etrovirine, rapivirine, favirine, you can't use the drug uh, comfortably in many of those settings. Um, but uh, doravirine can be used to salvage people who have uh, non-nucleoside uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitor uh, mutations. Um, one of the other advantages too is that uh, doravirine, when uh, the studies were done uh, with the triple regimen, so which is you know TDF um, uh, and and uh, uh, 3TC uh, or FTC, um, that that uh, combination was shown to have a bit of a favorable lipid profile. So some of the antiretroviral drugs are associated with uh, you know abnormal derangement in lipid profile. So. It's a relatively lipid-friendly drug. It's great for salvaging people with non-nucleoside diverse transcriptase inhibitor regimens while not sacrificing its ability to suppress the virus and keep people suppressed. Are lipid levels uh, considered when thinking about what uh, regimens to, to give people? Like if a person has uh, sort of a, a naturally high lipid levels, would you would that change the ART that they might get? I never actually thought Absolutely. of it before. Absolutely. So what's happening with people living HIV AIDS, right? There's an aging of the HIV population, right? So, you know, we keep talking about 50% of the HIV population uh, being above the age of 50. And we joke that providers also are aging at the same time. Um, but uh, so the point here is that HIV patients also have multimorbidity, you know, which means that, that you, have, you have HIV as you get older, you start to get hypertension, you know, you start to get kidney disease, you start to get atherosclerosis, risk of stroke, heart attacks, et cetera. So as our population ages, we're paying ever more attention to some of these long-term toxicities because in many cases, we're finding that some of these events, so for example, heart attacks and strokes appear to be occurring a little more prematurely in our patient population than others. So yes, we are paying attention to, we screen for these, at least on an annual basis, you know, assessing people's cholesterol, especially if they're not on treatment, you know, to assess what their, their uh, risk for heart disease is. Unfortunately, some of the algorithms or, you know, or, uh, that we use to de determine cardiac risk do not include things we think matter for HIV. So we tend to use algorithms that are designed for non-HIV patients, but we, we feel that our patients probably have much more higher risk than general population, but we don't quite have the tools to make that determination. Um, there's certain um, antiretroviral agents. So for example, abacavir has been associated with cardiovascular disease. That's why it's kind of falling out of favor. And then also there's two different forms of tenofovir. Tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate or TDF and tenofovir alafenamide, which is TAF. Now TAF has been associated with more lipid derangements than TDF. And so if I were going to start the patient on therapy or have someone who has cholesterol abnormalities, I probably would bias my therapy towards TDF, which is actually known to even decrease lipid levels, you know, as a secondary advantage. So yes, we do make, we do factor in those considerations into the choice of regimen. So um, I'd like to follow up on that too, because I'm wondering uh, with the aging population, the people who've been on ART for, you know, maybe several decades, um, you have some of the comorbidities associated with aging, like you said, like sometimes higher cholesterol levels, but also, um, does that also lead to a higher risk for developing drug-resistant um, HIV? So, yes. So, so there's a syndrome, what we call pill fatigue, 
which is that if you just follow adherence patterns over time, they tend to wane anyway, regardless of the population. And sometimes that waning is even steeper in, let's say, adolescents, for example, in certain groups. So yes, um, uh, people who uh, stay long on therapy tend to, you know, adherence tends to drop over time. But that's why I think the field is evolving as we go along so that many of these people who are taking a pill three times a day or taking multiple pills a day have now been transitioned to one pill a day. Think about an individual who's been through taking multiple pills, a whole different level of appreciation they would have for having a single tablet regimen. And then with the promise now of agents that can be long acting. So I think part of the evolution of the field will help the concerns with you know, uh, adherence waning over time. I see. I guess what I was thinking was deraverine because it is uh, has a better resistance profile and because it keeps lipids, it actually reduces lipids, I think. Is that right? Or it at least doesn't... Because it has, because it has stevia in it. Yeah. yeah. So it could be kind of a, a useful drug for um, the, the people who've been on ART for a long time as an alternative. That's exactly correct. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask, I wanted to sort of shift gears just a little bit. And I've been hearing about something called rapid start. What is this? Why is it important? And what drugs are used for it? And how is it different from traditional ART? Yeah, so that's a great question uh, and really a contemporary issue around rapid start. So let's dial back to really talk about why rapid start was important. So one of the frustrations is, and I know many people are aware of what we call the HIV care continuum or the HIV cascade which looks at of the universe of people living with HIV in any setting, doesn't necessarily have to be in the U.S., how many of those people are diagnosed? Of those who are diagnosed, how many of them are linked to care? Of those who are linked to care, how many of those are, we now use the term continuing clinic, we don't say, you know, retained in care, and who are started on ARPT and who are biologically suppressed. So you see, even in the United States, you know, it's only about maybe 50%, and I think that's a generous estimate, of the HIV people who are living with HIV who are virologically suppressed. So one of the uh, uh, barriers along the cascade is that people get diagnosed with HIV, but there's a loss of linkage to care or suboptimal linkage to care, right? And then downstream of that is that even fewer of them can go on antiretroviral therapy. And then of course, uh, fewer of them are suppressed. So Rapid Start tries to, to, to fast track that cascade where an individual can actually be diagnosed, be counseled about the disease the same day, have their insurance checked, or if they don't have insurance, get a starter pack of ART and be initiated on ART the same day. So Rapid Start really aims to try to uh, uh, shorten the time from diagnosis to being put on ART. And the ideal for Rapid Start is to have it done within seven days, okay? But an aggressive form of rapid start is even to have what we call same-day start so that people get diagnosed and they leave the clinic or leave the testing site with um, antiviral therapy. Now, why is that important? Because then when people have looked at the cascade following rapid start programs, they find that there are the high rates of continuity in clinic, you know, one year after you do rapid start, earlier time to viral suppression in those patients, you know, and those are very good outcomes so that people get suppressed sooner. They are more likely to uh, stay engaged in care, which really addresses some of those gaps in the HIV continuum. So Rapid Start has generally been adopted. It's, you know, uh, in the HIV guidelines 
and not just domestically, but internationally. So, uh, so it sounds like um, with rapid start, you would start people on medication without maybe knowing like what strain of HIV specifically they have, or if they have some comorbidity that might be better treated with one type of ART versus another. It's just to get them going right away. And then you sort of work out the details and maybe change the medication that, as needed. That's exactly correct. So what we tend to do is because so Everyone that's diagnosed with HIV gets a genotype. What genotype is, is that you're looking at the strain they have to see if all the medications work for it. Some of the medications don't work for it because the virus is resistant to that. So when we do a rapid start, we select regimens that we know ab initio that the rates of, because this surveillance data, so we know the prevalent resistance mutations in our environment and community in the US. So we choose regimens that are very unlikely that any virus acquired in the U.S. could be resistant to. I'll give you an example. So, for example, we use a drug like dolutegravir, okay, for which primary resistance is literally unheard of. And also we can use uh, protease inhibitors like darunavir as well um, in rapid start. So, yes, when you do rapid start, you no longer can use every regimen available to you. You have to cherry pick those that have a high barrier to resistance, those that are unlikely that people acquiring HIV would have resistance to them upfront. And then when you have the genotype, then you can always tailor your regimen, you know, give people something different, uh, if you will. But that aggressive approach right at the beginning really, really impacts the outcomes later in terms of viral suppression. That's, an, that's really amazing. Yeah, we have many. Yes, we have many potent agents, frankly. I, I think it's more about the timing than, than the potency. You know, um, but again, we just have so much choice and very effective regimens out there. I think timing, timing, timing is key. Making sure that you start people as soon as possible for when they're diagnosed so you can preserve their immune system. You know, if people are acutely infected, you can actually decrease what we call the size of the viral reservoir. So where HIV hides itself, you can actually lower the amount of HIV that's hidden in the body if you start someone sooner after they're infected. Um, if a woman is pregnant, if you start them on therapy, you reduce the chance, you increase the chance that they can be suppressed. So you don't have to do a C-section, for example, and it can reduce the risk of in utero uh, transmission. If people are in a serodifferent relationship, starting the infected partner early, especially if the uninfected partner is at risk, right? That can be one way to, to reduce that. So Rapid Start just has so many you know, potential benefits for different uh, types of populations, but it's all, all about timing. It sounds like it would be a great talking point to try to motivate people to get tested. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, getting the word out there, you know, so, so, okay. So why do people not go for testing, right? So there's still a lot of stigma, you know, fear that, you know, this could be a life-changing diagnosis if I get it, but also on one hand too, it's also being fueled by you know, um, if, if I get diagnosed with this, especially for people who are not in touch with the advancements in treatments, this could be, you know, um, uh, a significant life-threatening illness. But I think uh, if we get the word out about just the advancement in therapeutics, many of us in the field say that HIV is so much easier to treat than, you know, so many other chronic medical conditions, hypertension, diabetes, for example, is just so much easier to treat than, than many of those and with so many uh, safe options that have been studied over a long period of time. So it's a new day. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, one other message, obviously, to get people tested is just, you know, to remind people that the sooner you know, the sooner you get a therapy, the better your outcome will be. 
And the, you, the fact that you won't be uh, uh, giving HIV to anyone else is an important component of that, right? So we wanna reduce and end the epidemic. Um, and so people who are HIV positive, if they're on uh, drug therapy and uh, they're virally suppressed, then their risk of transmission to others is nil. And so that's an important uh, piece of um, making sure that when you're communicating messages about the importance of your maintaining and sustaining your health by going on medication that you're also able to help reduce the transmission and um, ideally we can end the epidemic. Let's talk a little bit about this drug resistance that you referenced before. And are there like broad spectrum antiretroviral therapies that are in development that we should consider or be knowing uh, that we should know that are on the horizon? So there's a couple of uh, monoclonal antibody agents that are there. If the monoclonal antibodies are exciting because they're almost like a passive form of immunization, if you will. So they have potential even applications to prevention as well, right? Because these are antibodies, right? That prevent the virus from, you know, um, you know, depending on what the target of the monoclonal antibody is, but can really uh, prevent viral infections for taking holds. You know, we've seen how monoclonal antibodies, for example, have been amazing with regards to COVID, right, in outpatient settings to both protect against people who are exposed and also for those who are diagnosed early to keep them from being hospitalized because they're very effective. So there's early, very exciting early studies looking at using monoclonal antibodies as treatments uh, for, for HIV. And again, those are also, you know, can be long-acting formulations. Um, so some of them can be given every couple of months. Um, and, you know, the safety profile of these monoclonal antibodies are, are excellent, you know, and don't have some of the baggage that some of the other antivirals have, you know, so there's so many of those uh, percolating in the background. There's all kinds of novel uh, combination strategies. There's a whole field that's working on cure research. So which is trying to combine, you know, compounds or drugs that are able to force the latent virus to replicate and then use antiretroviral therapy to mop it up you know, so-called shock and kill or all kinds of strategies out there. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, good stuff uh, percolating in the background that are focused on really three areas. One is HIV prevention, as you, as you can imagine. Two is HIV treatment, making that better. And then three, the most uh, adventurous and futuristic and, um, you know, consequential, which is even daring to think about are there ways that we can even potentially uh, cure HIV with therapeutics. So, you know, the last one is probably the most challenging, um, but, you know, no one's writing it off and there's a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears going into exploring that. That's exciting. I mean, the idea of curing it um, is really exciting, but I want to ask about the monoclonal antibodies that you're talking about for um, uh, treating. Um, we talked about one that needs to be infused, but it sounds like you're talking about something that almost reminds me of Rogam, like used to treat maternal fetal mm. RH incompatibility. Mm -hmm. Is it kind of along those same lines? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's yes, really exactly. So that's the whole point. So an antibody binds to an antigen, right? And you can make a monoclonal antibody to bind to any antigen or you know protein of interest that you want. Um, yeah, so that's uh, essentially the, the approach. Um, you know, that's been being used and I think it's uh, really exciting. Let's um, take a few minutes to just talk about um, the pharmacological prevention of HIV infection. Um, PrEP, of course, is very successful 
Um, what kinds of drugs are used or uh, antiretroviral drugs are typically used for PrEP? Um, are there any new classes that are being tested? Yeah, so remember there's uh, two, two uh, regards to HIV prevention, there's two ways to look at where drugs work in the life cycle of the virus. So that's what we call pre-integration. So all the steps that the virus takes leading up to when, you know, um, the virus reverse transcriptors makes a DNA copy of the viral RNA and that DNA then gets integrated in a host cell. That's all pre-integration. And then post-integration, you know, it's a whole different uh, category of uh, 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 treatment. We now have actually drugs that have that are in development that actually work both pre and post-integration. But the point is, if you want a drug to prevent HIV, you want something pre-integration, right? It would be silly to do a post-integration drug where HIV is already able to establish latency and then use a drug that works after that. So how we choose drugs for PrEP is you really want something that works pre-integration. So that's why anything that interferes with attachments that affects repressed transcriptase and all those cross, you know, affects the capsid uh, on coding, things like that. So anything that works before the integration step are desirable. So you know, you, you all know that you know TDF-FTC was the first approved PrEP oral PrEP one today. And then you have tenofovir alafanamide FTC that was also approved, I think, in 2019, uh, also for uh, oral PrEP. Now there's excellent data from cabotegravir, which is an intramuscular injection that was an intravenous inhibitor that uh, was dosed every eight weeks. It's exciting because you know this this isn't it it outperformed TDF FTC both in men who have sex with men and transgender women who have sex with men, but also heterosexual women. And we know that some of the data with TDF FTC in women wasn't that great because of the adherence issues. So just to see that there's a, an intramuscular injection that works like excellently for heterosexual women is very very exciting. You can imagine it starts to address the adherence issue with TDF FTC. And we think some of the advantages that the white carbotegravir looks so much better than TDF-FPC was because the adherence of the TDF-FPC arm was not as great in a subset of patients. So adherence kind of drove that as well. Um, and also, you know, one thing I, you know, um, one thing I like about it is, you know, oral TDF, typically uh, patients who would use it in certain cultural settings, there has to be some kind of partner buying or support to use an oral pill consistently. But imagine going to a clinic and getting an injection without having to negotiate with a partner or go home or have anything to show for it. I think the agency, it gives women to be able to access reproductive health services independently and without needing buy from a partner. So it's such an exciting thing based on just the, the frequency that it's being given, convenience, safety, uh, efficacy, but agency that it gives vulnerable populations to be able to, uh, you know, uh, secure their reproductive health. And so that that's a super uh, encouraging thing to know that um, for some populations where some people who have uh, uh, access problems to taking it, whether it's a partner, stigma, other kinds of barriers. But when we think about PrEP, how, how well is it utilized in uh, in, in the community, how well are we doing with getting PrEP rolled out to people who are at risk of HIV? Very poorly, Bob, unfortunately. I think the estimates are that of the uh, one point something million people in the U.S. who are at risk for acquiring HIV through a variety of risk behaviors, including people, you know, men, infected men, heterosexual individuals, people who inject drugs, um, only about 20 or so percent of those have ever used PrEP. 
Now, 20% doesn't mean that 20% are consistently on PrEP. It means they've at least received a prescription for PrEP. So there's even probably some dropouts in that number. So the numbers are this small. Then let's talk about disproportionately affected. So um, uh, uh, data seems to suggest there's geographical variations in PrEP availability. And you know that more than half of the people living HIV in the US live in the South. And uh, you can imagine that the prevalence of HIV in the community drives incidents, right? And so in some of the hotter spots of the country, there's little PrEP availability. So they're PrEP deserts, like we call even in parts, just geography of the US, um, where there's kind of an ongoing transmission. Then think about the groups that are disproportionately impacted by HIV, right? So racial, ethnic minorities, Black and Latinx individuals. If you look at the proportion of virus and NISTI, those who are on PrEP, huge gaps. You know, majority of the people on PrEP are whites and, you know, very few uh, Latinx and even fewer Blacks. So, and then if you look at age, again, um, we know that even among the MSM population, and we know that it's a different story in the younger MSM population where there's, in some cases, rising incidence of HIV as against a decline in all of the risk groups. Younger um, minority MSM are probably one of the lowest uh, uh, that, uh, regarding uptake of PrEP. So we have a huge problem when it comes to just you know, uh, PrEP uptake among the most at-risk uh, populations. So there's a lot of work to be done regarding uh, PrEP. What is the origin of PrEP deserts? Why, why are there areas of the country where PrEP is unavailable? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's multifactorial. So I think um, it, you know, uh, the, the availability of programs, like for example, drug assistance programs that support both HIV treatments and prevention, if you map the availability of some of those programs out, it almost mirrors the unavailability of you know, these kind of programs in certain parts of the state. So especially parts of the, some states that don't invest um, in, you know, uh, in, or have you know, this uh, support or resources for people living HIV or people at risk for HIV. You know, it's still the minority of states, if I'm not wrong, that have drug assistance programs for PrEP, for example, you know, so that you know, uh, people can access it uh, through other means. Uh, so that, that's for one. Second of all is provider density, frankly, you know, just having providers you know, um, available at clinics where you know, people can access uh, some of those treatments. Um, the, the time to your nearest prep provider is quite long in some parts of the country compared, compared to others. You know, and then, you know, also the patient level factors, right? Um, so we know, you know, in some areas that there's still a lot of stigma around even just being a, a gay person. And so if you're unwilling to disclose that to your family or your sexual partners or the health, your healthcare providers, then that doesn't even start to create the opportunity to discuss about, you know, your, your risk behaviors and prep being an option to protect you. So there's no one right answer, Sharon. There's a whole mix of, of factors that contribute to that. Can primary care providers prescribe PrEP? Um, it's so easy, even a caveman can do it. I mean, PrEP prescribing is so, so easy. Uh, PrEP prescribing is so easy. And I think that uh, all providers need, providers need a little education. You know, said, you know, some people have no familiarity whatsoever with antiviral compounds. So it takes a little bit of schooling, but frankly, it's just such an easy uh, order set, you know, just asking the right questions, um, uh, checking the right labs and providing a prescription. Um, one of the reasons why I think people are afraid to do PrEP, first of all, is their discomfort with discussing sex, right, um, in their clinic, the willingness to devote time 
to the patient encounter to talk about sex, the willingness to do other things that follow along with uh, prescribing PrEP, which means screening for STDs, knowing what to do if it tests positive, uh, being able to notify public health authorities for partner notification and just disease reporting. You know, so some people just get scared by the time commitment, the unfamiliarity with the sexual history or just, you know, discomfort, which can have cultural, religious basis, right? All, all kinds of, uh, of, of factors there. Um, and uh, being worried about the new class of drugs that they really don't use routinely to treat people. But, but we need to do better. I think if we're going to increase that 20% substantially, and remember, it's not just getting people on PrEP, it's keeping them on PrEP. So when clinics expand with PrEP, they stay expanded because you're adding a new client base that will continue to come to the clinic quite frequently. You know, so I think, um, you know, so, some settings need support. But I think, listen, everyone, OBGYN people, you know, anyone who is pregnant has had, you know, unprotected sex, right? Anyone who's using uh, birth control, right? is engaging in unprotected sex, right? Anyone who's had an STD is at risk for HIV. So anyone who is that gatekeeper, the primary care physician, the obstetrician, gynecologist, right? There's certain fields, maybe more than others, who just by virtue of the traffic of at-risk patients that they encounter, those will be high-yield settings to definitely try to implement PrEP in. You know, I'd also say that um, there are physicians who do not feel comfortable even ordering an HIV screening test because they're not comfortable giving a result. So they avoid ordering it at all um, in some settings. Um, our community health centers generally don't have that barrier per se, um, but there are some individual private docs, um, community doctors that um, and, and treaters, providers that are not, they don't wanna to have to give a positive result. So they, I think they avoid ordering the test because they also perceive that their populations are at no risk or low risk, um, and, but they don't do the sexual health history. They don't uh, connect the dots that this person may have had an STD. And so they're somebody who should be assessed for, um, for uh, PrEP as a option to help keep them from acquiring HIV. So finally, we've seen some remarkable new types of vaccines this year with enormously successful mRNA vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, as well as for several carriers of viruses for COVID and Ebola. HIV has typically been a resistant to vaccine development. Do you think the newer vaccine models may provide breakthrough opportunities for HIV vaccine? You know, um, I know I've heard people say how um, it's not for a lack of trying or efforts. I mean, they've really been literally four decades ever since antibodies were isolated that were at least able to either neutralize, partially neutralize the virus or have activity against parts of the virus. That's really has been the kickoff for, for vaccine approaches to HIV. But to date, they've failed. And um, even some of the more contemporary trials that have been done in sub-Saharan Africa also have, you know, has shown a bit of disappointing results. But I, I, I do agree that there's newer strategies that have come to bear. So the viral vector vaccines for COVID, for example, and the messenger RNA now open up potential options. And I do know that messenger RNA vaccines are now being at least explored um, uh, for HIV. So I think that there may be some lessons we've learned from COVID-19 vaccines that may serve as well. Um, but remember that one of the unique things about HIV is just, first of all, the diversity of strains that currently exist but also, you know, it's such an error-prone uh, 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 replication system that HIV has so that, you know, it makes 10 billion copies in a, in a day. 
in an individual if they're off of antiretroviral therapy. So that just the number of these mutations that accumulate over time um, can, you know, make it difficult to to have um, antibodies that neutralize every, you know, variant of the virus that you have. But I think there may be options here for a combination vaccine approach for, for example, using mRNA technology that encodes for maybe two or three different parts of the virus um, within the same vaccine. I would suggest, I would suspect that, you know, some of the strategies may be um, effective for HIV. So HIV is a, a different animal just because of its uh, uh, its replication and the fact that it's able to mutate um, uh, 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 mutates quite a lot and just the diversity of strains. So still a lot of work on that horizon to be done. And I wonder if, um, you know, the, the monoclonal antibody uh, drugs that are being worked on, right, they block entry of HIV into cells. Um, I'm wondering, would it be possible, I mean, maybe this is kind of crazy, but would it be possible to try to develop um, a person's immune system to create antibodies that do the same thing? You know, like specifically yeah, yeah. Targeting, so that's, the that's... Same, targeting the same epitopes to try to prevent the virus from entering. Yes, exactly. So again, those are, are being explored. So remember, I don't know if I said this, but you know, anti, uh, antibodies are uh, monoclonal antibodies are like passive immunization, right? Is you know, it's not active. So you have the preformed antibody that's delivered, right? As against vaccines that induced active immunity, which means you get something that stimulates the immune system and the body produces its own uh, uh, antigens. When when we think about vaccines, um, you know, uh, in HIV. We don't just think of it uh, in the context of like every other vaccine, something you take to prevent the disease. I think what you're rightly mentioned, Sharon, is that we can actually use vaccines to treat disease. So let me give you an example. So the way, you know, for example, the COVID vaccines have worked is, you know, you give them mRNA that encodes for the spike protein, they develop antibodies against the spike protein when they see the virus, you know, the, the preformed antibodies or the newly formed ones would attack the spike protein, right? So there's an immune memory of that. Can you imagine if someone gets a, who is HIV infected already gets a vaccine, right? That makes the body produce these neutralizing antibodies. All of a sudden, that vaccine can then play a treatment role because the vaccine in that individual would cause the body to produce antibodies that halts the virus from infecting new cells. So in the HIV world, when we use the term vaccine, we don't just mean vaccines to prevent infection. There's also potential applications of vaccines as therapeutics for those who are already infected. So again, it'll be very exciting to see where the field goes in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that is exciting. With all these new medications and the host of medications that we have that are available to treat HIV, I'm wondering, you know, there's, there's always been a long-standing history of dealing with stigma in um, the uh, HIV community for patients. Um, and I think there's also like a provider stigma that we, we don't really talk about much. Um, and, and that relates to whether providers who treat people with HIV have to deal with stigma because of the kind of work they do, or they have their own um, internal uh, you know, ex uh, issues or biases that can be deferred or um, come out in how they care for patients. I, uh, I want to say that we all, I'm a nurse as a clinical provider. I like to think that I'm pretty, um, you know, even and fair-handed and, and equitable in the kind of hair, care that I deliver. Um, but do you think that uh, as part of the evolving um, treatment modalities that are available and the, that we should be doing more to address um, stigma so that people understand that the 
health outcomes for people with HIV are so much better and that um, they uh, that we should uh, try to normalize having this as a chronic disease. We, we still have more work to do. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, um, about that issue of stigma in the medical community and uh, patients' perspective around stigma. Yeah, so absolutely. So I actually have some strong feelings on this. So listen, when HIV started and there was a need to offer HIV patients customized care, it made sense to have segregated programs, right? So we had HIV-focused programs. So we had HIV clinics. We had you know, resources that were targeted for HIV. But one of the unintended consequences of creating the HIV clinic and HIV providers is we have actually fueled stigma you know, so that anyone being seen walking into a drug dispensary or a pharmacy that's an HIV dispensary or an HIV clinic is known to have HIV and that's a deterrent for people to go. So I think now that you know, a lot more people are comfortable with HIV, now that we have a plethora of medications that are easy for even non-HIV providers to manage, I think it's now time to integrate HIV care into routine clinic services, right? So that there's no more that uh, segregation and separation so that I think that would go a long way, even from the provider standpoint, to let providers know, you know, this is like diabetes, this is like hypertension, this is like, you know, any other medical condition you're, you're managing, right? So I think some of that is really important. I think we really need to think hard about that uh, so that we can, you know, um, create a much more conducive environment for patients. But then to link stigma to the medications, again, having medications that people can receive in the clinic as against what they have to self-administer at home, having medications that they can take less frequently. So that's even less dependence on the healthcare system or showing up, you know, in a HIV clinic for medications, I think is how long acting agents can at least contribute to uh, reducing some of the stigma associated with the disease and, and its treatment. So yes, um, it's, it, you know, some of the things I mentioned do not eliminate stigma. There's, you know, so many uh, nuances and sides and components of stigma that are difficult to address. But I think that um, beyond having effective treatments for patients, I think one way we can improve testing rates, one way we can improve people uh, continuing clinic, one way we can improve adherence to therapy is addressing stigma. It, it runs through the entire HIV cascade and care continuum that we really need to address stigma at all levels and, and, uh, to, to, to really uh, improve the care and outcomes of people who are either at risk or, or have HIV. That's a massive societal change we're, we're talking about though. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so Dr. O, it's been so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and educating our listeners about uh, the new directions in ART. It's my pleasure, uh, Sharon and Bob. I mean, um, I hope that uh, this has been enlightening uh, for, for the listeners and we're all looking for a brighter day and even more brighter day for um, our people living with HIV. Thank you.